Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and welcome to this Federalist Society virtual event. My name is Sam Fenler, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups with the Federalist Society. Today, we're excited to host Chapter 11 Bankruptcy and Mass Torts, a review of the Third Circuit's LTL opinion featuring Professors Tony Casey and Lindsay Simon. Professor Tony Casey is the Donald M. Ephraim Professor of Law and Economics at the University of Chicago Law School. He is an expert on business law, finance, and corporate bankruptcy, and his research examines the intersection of finance and law. Before entering the academy, Professor Casey was a corporate attorney focused on corporate bankruptcy and related matters. Professor Lindsay Simon is the Robert Cotton Alston Associate Chair in Corporate Law at the University of Georgia School of Law. Professor Simon's research currently focuses on the intersection between mass torts and bankruptcy, and she has provided commentary on major bankruptcies such as Purdue Pharma and USA Gymnastics. Before entering the academy, Professor Simon was a practicing attorney with a focus on commercial litigation and corporate restructuring. If you'd like to learn more about today's speakers, their full bios can be viewed at fedsoc.org. After our speakers give their opening remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please place it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom window, and we'll do our best to answer as many questions as we can. Finally, I'll note that, as always, all expressions of opinion today are those of our guest speakers, not the Federalist Society. And with that, Professor Casey, thank you very much for joining us, and the floor is yours. Great. Thanks, Sam. I appreciate being here. It's uh, I find this topic fascinating and interesting in the case is definitely worth thinking about. And I'm especially excited to be here uh, with Professor Simon talking about it. Um, this idea, this question of how bankruptcy deals with mass torts has become super important in the last few years. And Professor Simon, though we, I think we'll, you'll see, we disagree about some uh, major issues in it. I think she was the first person to really dig into this and give a thorough analysis. And so uh, her work is the kind of starting point for thinking about it in the academy. And I think one thing she will agree with me on is that um, it, once you get past the lawyers in the cases, a lot of people don't understand what's going on in these cases. Uh, that includes academics, that includes the media, and a lot of people talking about the Johnson & Johnson case, which we'll talk about today, about Purdue, uh, say things that have very little connection to the reality of the case. And so I think um, I'm glad to have someone here who knows the reality of these cases. And so when we disagree, it's going to be about things that are happening in the real cases, which is what we should be thinking about when we talk about these topics. So here's the update, and, and I'll give you the background of the case before getting into the Third Circuit opinion. Um, as I said, mass tort in bankruptcy has become a hot topic. It's been a topic for 30, 40 years where you know, one way to resolve mass torts or one attempted way is to put a, a debtor into bankruptcy and then try to settle claims in that forum. Um, lately, there's been high profile attempts at doing this and the Johnson & Johnson LTL case is one of the very high profile ones. So the the mass tort we're talking about is baby powder, talcum powder related mass tort. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the science of the allegations and the whether or not they're valid or not. But the basic idea is that uh, two things that that talcum powder uh, itself might contribute to ovarian cancer and might also contain uh, asbestos, which might contribute to ovarian cancer and mesothelioma. And so there's been kind of the last decade has seen an increase in lawsuits against Johnson and Johnson and, and other uh, other parties in the talc industry claiming or alleging that their are, you know, either mesothelioma or ovarian cancer was contributed to by the talc that they produced. At the time of filing, it, it, Johnson and Johnson was facing with estimated about 38 to 40,000 cases. I think now it's over 40,000 predicted, you know, depending on who you ask, there's at least as many 
future claims coming, or at least tens of thousands of future claims coming. Part of that is that the effects take a while to be, become known. So you don't use it and get sick. You use it and years later, perhaps decades later, you get sick. And so they're facing 40,000, but maybe up to 80 to 90,000 cases uh, related to uh, baby powder and talcum powder. Now, most of those are the ovarian cancer cases, a smaller group of the mesothelioma cases. And in the litigation, that there's slightly different characteristics of the claims that make those play out differently and have different strategies, perhaps, that the lawyers might take. Anyway, so there was a few trials that went forward a while ago, uh, before the filing, before the well, the bankruptcy we're talking about, and they were kind of verdicts all over the place. Uh, Johnson and Johnson was successful in a few uh, at trial. They were successful in a few on appeal. They were unsuccessful on others, and there was one large one where it was some around four billion dollars to twenty some, I think twenty two claimants. And so you can think of the the damages in these claims that have been tried. Not that many trials. But in the ones that happened, ranging from zero to about 200 million per plaintiff. And that's a pretty big range and, and the, you know, kind of hard to predict what will happen. So then Johnson and Johnson sees this and uh, tries to settle. And so they've they, they negotiated settlements, one off with some of the parties. And then, you know, there was actually an attempt to settle in a different bankruptcy before they did any of the Texas two step. The Emirates bankruptcy was a supplier of theirs and they tried to use that they tried to offer a settlement in that proceeding to kind of wrap this all up. When that failed, the the next thing they did was what's pejoratively and kind of infamously become known as the Texas two-step. So they're faced with these tens of thousands of claims and they, they want to, you know, Either make them go away and pay nothing is one story of it, or if they're valid claims, they want to settle them for some amount and make them go away and kind of move on. And so the Texas two-step, the, the strategy they used was to create an entity and then put it in bankruptcy with the intent of getting to a settlement number and the settlement number to cover all the um, claimants. And so the Texas two-step I've always said is kind of the red herring in all this. It's not the important part of it. It's not the you know parties, uh, the media is like, oh, this is this really nefarious move to avoid liability. It, it's not, it doesn't avoid any liability. It is a move to simplify the bankruptcy that's coming. So the first step is to under Texas law, separate an entity into two parts, into two new entities, give one the assets and give the other the liabilities. Now, Johnson & Johnson is a large company we think of as this you know, $400 billion market capitalization. The baby powder was in a subsidiary, which is a large company in itself, reportedly around $61 billion. Now, the the and that's Johnson and Johnson Johnson and Johnson Consumer Industries or Inc. JJCI was what we called it, what they called it before the split. So that's where the most obvious target of these litigation lawsuits was was at JJCI. So JJCI used a Texas divisional merger, and even though it's called a merger, it's really a division, and they divided into what people have called new JJCI and LTL. New JJCI had the assets, LTL had the talc liabilities. And then LTL, very shortly after, files for bankruptcy, not in Texas, that's kind of something like, oh, this is all going on in Texas. No, they filed for bankruptcy in North Carolina. That ultimately got transferred to New Jersey, and that's where the case is now pending and, and why we'll talk about the appeals court in the third circuit. Now, if, as I've said this a few times before, if what I just described was all that had happened, that would be a really nefarious, bad fraudulent transfer, and it would survive no court's review, but that's not all that happened. So when they created that asset entity and that liability entity, they said, we're going to create an agreement to make sure that the liability entity has exactly the same asset support that existed before the split. So old JJCI, the pre-division company, had $61 billion in assets. New JJCI has those assets and says, we agree to pay liability company, LTL, whatever amount of liability they end up paying up to the amount of those assets at the time of the division. That's the 61 billion. 
If those assets go up in value, we agree to give them that increase in value if the liability number requires that to be paid out. And then they added to that, that Johnson & Johnson, the parent company, backed that guarantee. Now that's useful in case the asset value goes down. So let's say JJCI and you know they make the Band-Aids, they make Tylenol. If that value goes down over time, they don't have the 61 billion. Johnson & Johnson, which includes its pharmaceutical company and other you know, prescriptions and vaccines, they've backed that $61 billion payment if those assets go down. So this is called the funding agreement. The idea was that the funding agreement would be available if the company ended up paying money out of bankruptcy or if the company ended up paying money in bankruptcy. But the plan was always to immediately put LTL into bankruptcy and that's what they did. So LTL goes into bankruptcy, as I said, filed in North Carolina. The North Carolina court said wrong venue, shipped it up to uh, New Jersey. Then the claimants and the claimants again are, um, there's a committee of uh, tout claimants and there's, and ultimately that we're divided into the mesothelioma claimants and the ovarian claimants. But there's also gonna be, there's also is a future claims representative, future tort claims representative, because we know that people in the future might get these claims and Johnson and Johnson or, you know, and LTL and the bankruptcy are trying to settle all of that. They're trying to make all of this go in one global settlement. So they file that bankruptcy and that's the step two of the Texas two step. So step one was the division. Step two was the filing. Um, interestingly, if you read some reports, people are like, oh, these Texas two steps are everywhere. This case is going to end this huge trend. I don't know if four is a trend. So there's there's really four, five, depending on how you count them, uh, Texas two-step bankruptcies. Now, it is true. Well, I believe it to be true that there are a lot of other companies thinking about doing this. And so there may be a trend coming depending on how all these cases play out. But that's the universe right now is four or five of these cases. So the claimants in New Jersey moved to dismiss the case. What was interesting to me is if you read the briefs, there's actually briefs from different groups of claimants. One group argued that the funding agreement is totally illusory and therefore this was a bad faith filing because it's just a way for Johnson & Johnson to get away from paying anything and the funding agreement's never gonna be enforceable, which my reading of the funding agreement, I don't see that. Um, and one of the other committee lawyers didn't either. So the other motion, the other argument in favor of the motion to dismiss was this funding agreement is so perfect and so bulletproof that there's so much money, this company can't be insolvent. And so why would you use bankruptcy if you've got a $61 billion pile of assets supported by a guarantee of the parent uh, to pay these liabilities? And we don't know what they are. They might be zero. They might be uh, 20 billion. They might be a lot more, but if that's so speculative, this is no reason to be in bankruptcy. And those were kind of the motions filed in the bankruptcy court. The bankruptcy judge, in a pretty thorough, I thought, opinion, went through and said, you know, this is a good faith filing. And it's a good faith filing because they're using bankruptcy for a bankruptcy purpose, which is to solve the kind of collective action problem that arises when you've got 40,000 current claims and maybe 40,000 future claims, and you're trying to negotiate a settlement. And that's very complicated. And you're going to otherwise be litigating in the MDL or state court system, which is expensive, but also uh, very complicated to get a settlement because the litigation costs are here. And then you're trying to say, okay, we want to settle all these various cases. And by the way, we can't bind anyone who's a holdout and we can't force future tort claimants to agree to the settlement because we don't know who they are. Bankruptcy actually allows you to bind the minority of holdouts. So let's say 95% of claimants want a settlement. Bankruptcy, at least we think can, can, and I say we think because there's other cases pending right now on this question, can bind that 5% to say, you've got to go along. And that's to a very kind of standard bankruptcy move and tool is we've got a group, we've got the majority of the group that wants to do something in their benefit and a small holdout, we force them along. Bankruptcy also has a procedure for allowing future tort claimants to be represented by a, 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 an appointed representative and then have their claims settled as well. The idea being that you end up with a fund 
And all, all claims go to that fund. So they agree to some number of settlement and then they go to that fund. Importantly, the only way to get to that outcome is a settlement, right? So to get to that payout, you've got to negotiate with the class of claimants and get the supermajority to agree and be on board. And then you get the settlement that you use bankruptcy to uh, achieve. All right. That's the kind of lower and the, that's the bankruptcy court explains that. And then he explains the value of the two step, which is just to take this part, this dispute among the debtor and all the tort claimants and separate it from all the other operations, from the Band-Aids and the Tylenol and all that. That's going to happen outside of bankruptcy. And we're not going to bring in all the claimants in the world to show up and raise their objections. We want to simplify and lower the cost of bankruptcy. So he denies the motion to dismiss and says, this is a very good place to resolve mass torts. This gets appealed to the Third Circuit. And at the Third Circuit, the parties make all kinds of arguments. Uh, they make arguments that this is, you know, depriving people of their right to court uh, outside of bankruptcy. They make arguments that the two steps shows some sort of bad faith. They make arguments that um, there's uh, this is. Uh, the, we know that this is going to end up forcing some folks along, and that's going to deprive them of their right to continue the litigation. The thought was this would tell us something about whether two steps were viable or not viable. I think in, in an opinion that I think surprised most people, not by outcome, but by reasoning, I think very few people were sure how to predict the appellate court. But the Third Circuit reversed, and it said this was a bad or this was not a good faith filing. This was uh, the filing lacked good faith. Therefore, it should have been dismissed. But in the opinion, the court didn't say anything about really whether two steps are good or bad. It didn't say anything about whether uh, the trying to use this to kind of get mass toward holdouts to go along is good or bad. All it said was that one argument I mentioned before, the one side said there's too much money here. The court said, that's a problem. There's too much money available. Therefore, this is not what bankruptcy is about. And so it's a, not a good faith filing because there's no, and the phrase it used was financial distress. And so ultimately the court says there weren't close enough to being out of money to file for bankruptcy. And the way they determined this was they said LTL, that's the debtor, had this funding agreement. The funding agreement will assume is good. And the court said it's basically an ATM uh, that they can get money from. And it's supported by one of the largest companies in the world, the parent company. And with that much money, you know, there's nothing to worry about as far as financial distress. The court didn't tell us much more about what qualifies as financial distress. And so uh, before I hand it over to, to Professor Simon, I'll just, I have some qualms and questions about the Third Circuit opinion. So the first is when you have potentially 80,000 claims that range from zero to 200 million, that could bankrupt any company in the world. Uh, and if those claims are all worth a million dollars, then LTL would be insolvent. Um, if they're worth $10, obviously it's not. And we don't know where they're at, but the, there's this question of how certain do you have to be that this distress is coming? That, that's one thing, and I'll come back to that a little in a minute. The other thing is, we know that bankruptcy can help coordinate and solve collective action problems. We know that this is a group of 40,000 claimants with differing interests, and so bankruptcy could help resolve and lower the cost of that um, process. And that's what it does in other areas. So it's, you know, I'm trying now to figure out, so, okay, that's not financial distress. This uncertain future thing is not financial distress. What is? And the biggest worry I have is in all kinds of other cases, non-solvent, non-insolvent debtors file. And one of the, I think, benefits of the U.S. system is you don't have to be out of money to file for bankruptcy. You can file earlier than that. You can file before the house burns down is the way I always like to think about it. And other countries say, no, you have to be insolvent. This court did not say you have to be, but they said something re related to insolvency has to be true. That worries me for future cases because it's a pretty broad ruling that doesn't tell us anything about mass torts. It just says there needs to be something called financial distress. The other criticisms I would have and questions is it's a very ironic outcome. So Johnson & Johnson put too much money up to be available to claimants. 
which implies if they put less money available, if the claimants were worse off and there was less money to support whatever liability results, that this would have been a good faith filing. That's an odd thing for me to hear like, oh, they were in bad faith because they, they protected the claimants more. And the other thing is the claims, we don't know if they're valid. If these claims were 100% good, if we knew that these were really, really 40,000 really good claims, there'd be no question that the company would be insolvent. And so the bad faith on Johnson & Johnson arises because maybe the plaintiff's claims are not all good. And so if Johnson & Johnson now goes to the MDL and loses a bunch of trials, and it turns out these claims are all worth $10 million, they'll be back, LTL will be back in bankruptcy, and that'll be a good faith filing. If it turns out they're all bad claims and there's no, you know, we don't know who the plaintiffs are or we don't have a causation, if that's the outcome, then Johnson & Johnson was bad in bad faith because the claims against them weren't valid, and then they have to stay in the more expensive litigation arena. And, and that is just an odd outcome to say the bad faith of Johnson & Johnson arises because the claims against them might not be valid, uh, which is an odd result. And the last thing I'll say is it's an especially odd result for a rule that's not based on any statutory language. So the opinion in the Third Circuit is dismissing a case for lack of good faith because there isn't financial distress. Okay. There is nothing in the bankruptcy code that says you should dismiss a case for lack of good faith. That's a judge-made rule. And there's nothing in the bankruptcy code that says you should dismiss a case for when it lacks financial distress. That's a judge-made rule. And one thing I would just say is like, when we find odd results when we're following text, and I'm not myself a pure textualist, but sometimes you follow text and you get odd results, okay. But when you have judge-made rules that lead to this like bad incentives of, oh, don't put too much money up. Oh, bad claims, uh, good claims against you make bad faith, bad claims against you make good faith. It's very strange to have that rule created by a judge saying, here's this equitable rule we apply. And the court even said that we see there's this apparent irony and I, you usually think about ironic outcomes being oh, bad text in a statute. Here, these are purely judge-made rules, which generally I think should make more sense than pushing a, a, a litigant out of a forum to resolve and settle a case because they were overprotecting the other side, which you may disagree that that's true, but that was the reason this case, like court said they're dismissing the case. So I know I've talked to lawyers on both sides and the lawyers for the claimants will say, no, like this isn't in good faith for other reasons, but that's not why it was dismissed. It was dismissed because there was too much money available, which uh, seems very odd to me. So uh, sorry, I went a little long. Uh, Professor Simon. Excellent. Well, I, I think that's a very helpful background. I'll also say thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here to speak with you all about this because I do think um, outside of a relatively narrow circle, getting as far in the weeds doesn't happen all that often. So I'm thrilled that you all are interested. Uh, and again, you know, as Professor Casey mentioned, we share... Uh, a lot of awareness about this. And I think our views align on most of it. Uh, we do have some areas of disagreement, which I think we will get to. I, I just, I wanna take it back a little bit because um, as you heard earlier, this is a trend um, that, you know, it's not new to you know the last five or 10 years, but it is a trend that over the last five to 10 years, um, we've seen a lot of these cases. And, you know, while, it, this current case deals with a specific question of who should be able to access Chapter 11. But really, like this grouping of cases and the ones that are truly waiting in the wings based on these various appellate rulings, it's really this question of, in America, what system is best for resolving these problems? And some of these are, you know, are very narrow. They'll be like a, you know, a hip replacement or a, you know, some device, a mass tort. Some of them are societal harms, right? So it's not just, you know, is this product bad, but it, you know, there's this behavioral problem that's permeated our system. How do we deal with it? So opioids or sexual abuse. Um, but these cases, you know, for better or worse, they end up in bankruptcy courts because so far bankruptcy court has been available. And so um, more and more and more cases have ended up there, some because they truly ran out of money and some because they realized that it's a better system um, in terms of efficiency, in terms of outcome, in terms of process. Um, it has all sorts of perks. Uh, and so again, what is our court's response? And so I'll start by saying, uh, you know, for those that are not in bankruptcy, um, 
like any element of procedure, you don't get anything from the court unless you ask for it. Um, when the debtor files for bankruptcy, they make all sorts of choices. Uh, they choose the system, they choose the location. Uh, in some instances, they choose the judge. Uh, and so in a, when you contrast that process to, you know, generally, you know, litigating a mass tort out in civil litigation, um, Plaintiffs make a lot of decisions in MDLs or even outside of MDLs. Plaintiffs have a lot of power. And when I say plaintiff, to be clear, I don't mean the actual individuals with claims. For the most part, I think their power in any system is relatively small. Um, but plaintiff's attorneys run a lot of the show. And so bankruptcy is a very unique opportunity for defendants to flip the script, to take the power back, to pick the forum, to do all these things. So the allure makes complete sense. Um, but again, these cases keep coming and we ask judges questions. The biggest question, as I said, is who should be able to use the system? Because bankruptcy is not designed for everybody. Um, I, I, I think it's a very effective system. I like bankruptcy, but I also... I, I understand the idea that, you know, many critics of this say, well, we shouldn't let everyone file for bankruptcy. There are reasons for it. And so, you know, on that specific question, the Third Circuit did say, you know, and it does seem ironic, right? If the company um, paid less, then you would be along here. And so really, you know, we are sending claimants back to a system where more of the money that would go to them is going to be spent on lawyers and court costs and fighting all over the place. And maybe they'll get a settlement if they can't stand bankruptcy. Um, maybe it'll take longer. Maybe it'll be better, may it be worse. But the court, before they know all of that, has to sit and make a decision. Is this a proper use of the system? And if you look inside the Third Circuit's opinion, um, Judge Ambrose speaks about the costs, right, and the significant impact that claimants experience when they go into bankruptcy. And so they say that cost is, is built in. It's, it's a feature of the system. It's there on purpose. We will bind people who don't agree. That minority has to be bound in a bankruptcy case. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Um, we will force you to come to this court rather than the court of your choosing. That's the only way it works, because in a bankruptcy, if we can't resolve it in one place, we're going to lose value. And bankruptcy focuses on preserving value. So all of these realities for claimants where their experience in litigation will be altered, that's a big cost. And the, you know, the court's opinion in LTL says, well, we recognize that cost and it, it is there. It's very real. It's necessary, but we're really only going to open the bankruptcy court and the bankruptcy system in instances where it is absolutely necessary. And so I don't really, you know, to, to take a step forward to the, you know, what happens next, I'm not sure that this has such, you know, the financial distress test, I agree. If, if, if someone makes an argument in a plain vanilla chapter 11 saying, well, this debtor has too many assets, they could pay. Like, I, I honestly think that this opinion, while it is designed to be broad, I think an easy pushback is to say, well, our focus on financial distress is, particularly high when we're dealing, for example, in mass tort cases with so many claimants who have their rights so severely impacted. So for example, in cases where there's less of that impact, so all of the creditors are vendors, or, you know, we have few, we have very few litigation claims. We're just talking about people who, you know, won't get paid back in full on their item. Maybe then financial distress isn't quite as strong of a, of a lever to push people out of the system. So that's just me looking forward. But again, that's the question today. And so in the third circuit, at least so far, we have a financial distress threshold um, for accessing the, the court. And this is a big decision. I think it will certainly deter um, cases from filing in the third circuit on that basis. I don't know that any you know big companies are willing to take the gamble on pushing where the line is on financial distress just yet. Um, and so then the question is, well, where else can we file? Because again, one of the benefits of bankruptcy is that for the most part, you get to pick where you file. And so maybe uh, soon we will see what the Seventh Circuit thinks on this issue, because in the related 3M case um, relating to ear plugs um, and liability there, they did not do a Texas two-step, but they did file a very similar bankruptcy and they used basically an identical funding agreement. In some ways, it's even more rich because it's not capped at the, you know, the old subsidiary. It's not capped at the 61 billion. I, I believe it's uncapped. So, you know, there's a current motion to dismiss pending uh, in the bankruptcy court. So we will see as that case progresses along, whether this viewpoint that financial distress is, you know, at the heart of a good faith bankruptcy filing. And without it, you really should not be able to push claimants um, out of their court, uh, force them to a result that they don't agree to, and all of the other elements of bankruptcy that are just part of the system. So that question we will, we will, um, we will figure out, I guess, 
a bit about the, the second question that a lot of our cases are still going to be grappling with. And this is why Johnson & Johnson wanted to create LTL and put it in in the first place. It's what do you get out of the bankruptcy, right? What is the end game? How does this really solve things for you? And so the consolidation element, we've discussed a couple points and I don't think we can emphasize it enough. Having everyone at one negotiating table rather than, you know, eight negotiating tables while there are 10 jury trials and, you know, it, it it, it's very, it's very fast and it, you know, will not always get done as quickly as everyone would like, but it is surely effective to force everyone in one place. Uh, it narrows the field of issues to address and it at least imposes some order. Um, the automatic stay um, and preliminary injunction issue, like, again, prior to the last you know six months or so, it was pretty routine for when you file for bankruptcy, not only do you get the automatic stay, which prevents any action uh, to proceed in litigation or to recover against the debtor, um, but the courts would also grant preliminary injunctions for related parties. So non-debtors who, you know, for example, were co-defendants. And so if you made a claim against one of these co-defendants, it might be raised judicata and impact, you know, might decide the facts that would relate to some other liability. So if there's really others around the debtor, claims against them would also be paused. And so this time and space to negotiate was pretty pretty important and, and came pretty quickly. Now, I'll tell you, in 3M, one of the issues they're dealing with is the fact that the court denied the preliminary injunction. So 3M filed an affiliate arrow in the you know bankruptcy court in Indiana. Um, and the bankruptcy court said, no, we're not extending this to 3M, you know, the company that you know might also be impacted and signed the funding agreement. So 3M had to go back and deal with the MDL that they were pretty overtly trying to avoid in filing for bankruptcy in Indiana. So um, so the the initial case, right, the automatic stay in preliminary injunctions, getting that time and space, incredibly valuable. And then really, you know, beyond negotiating and the, the biggest the biggest one in all of this, and we haven't even gotten there, is how your claims get finally resolved by a plan of reorganization. If you get through bankruptcy successfully, and none of these Texas two-step cases have gotten there yet, um, and maybe the fact that they're not there is, is a feature and not a bug, um, if you get to the end and you confirm a plan, you can put all the money in a trust. You can channel all litigants into that trust. And then any future claims will also have to go against that trust. So it is a one and done chance to really resolve all of the disclosed liability. That's not available anywhere else. Uh, you know, we cannot do that in a class action. We cannot force people to do it without consent. It just doesn't exist. And whether that ultimate remedy remains to be available, that's in part the stuff of the Second Circuit appeal in the Purdue Pharma case. So you, you signed up for a Johnson Johnson webinar, but the thing is the value in all of this, these cases are all tied together, testing different features of the same question. What role does bankruptcy play in our broader civil litigation system? What role should it play? And if you are allowed to engage in it, what sort of checks and limits and balances should be built into place, which ones are actually in the bankruptcy code and supported by precedent, and how can courts, litigants, and frankly, legislators address this to be a, a system that can still save value, um, but maybe do it a little bit better and provide a better system. So I discussed a lot of things. I think I will, um, I will pause for now. I'm sure the Q&A will bring up some other issues, but I just wanted to, to touch on a couple of those points. That's excellent. Well, thank you uh, both to Professor Casey and Professor Simon for your opening remarks. I think there was, I, I sensed agreement between the two of you, and maybe this is just a matter of objectivity, that the case, uh, the opinion out of the circuit court relied a lot on this discussion of financial distress. And of course, that, you know, what's key to that is LTL's access to this $61.5 billion. Um, instead of, you know, the, the, I, there's a thought that maybe the court could have sent it back to the, to the bankruptcy court to discuss the matter of financial distress and, and create some kind of objective definition of what that means uh, instead of simply dismissing the case. I wonder, uh, and Professor Casey, we can start with you, uh, what you think about the lack of a clear definition of financial distress. Do we have a, a lack of a clear definition there? Do we need it? Uh, you know, what do you think about that question? Uh, we we definitely have a lack of a clear definition of financial distress. I, I mean, going in, my thought of bad faith dismissals were for extreme cases like the NRA case where I can't find a purpose. I can't find anything in the bankruptcy code that can help this 
litigants. So they're clearly just trying to stop. There it was a state regulator from doing something or two party disputes because bankruptcy doesn't solve two party disputes. So those are the quintessential bad faith dismissals. Now we have something. No, it's a, it's something to do with insolvency. And the, and the Third Circuit opinion says that. And then on the whether they remanded it, they have a there's a passage, a paragraph where they say, well, whether or not financial distress exists is a mixed question. And so this gets the standard of review. And I was at a, a panel with a bunch of bankruptcy judges shortly after the opinion came out. And they're like, wait, that sounds like a factual question, right? Like that's like, what are, what are your potential liabilities? What are your assets? Like, where's the mixed question there? And if you're going to call it a mixed question, I kind of need a, a legal standard to know what, like, I get it. Like, was I negligent is a, sometimes viewed as a mixed question because I have this legal standard and then what happened here? It's like, I, I know the factual inquiry, like assets, liabilities, contingencies, where what's the legal input we don't have that and all i'll, I'll say to uh, i think I, I mostly agree with what professor simon said that maybe most judges won't make a mess of this in most cases i think that's kind of what she was saying they'll just do this in the really bad in the really in the mass tort cases and one judge i heard say well this will be the bush v gore opinion where it never gets applied again but like if you asked me, was American Airlines in financial distress when they filed for bankruptcy, they decided to file early when they had money in the bank and they could refinance loans. They came out of bankruptcy with money for equity. You know, like, I don't know if, if I'm a clever litigant, maybe I argue they weren't. I, I think any judge would let that filing have gone forward, but it's at least a plausible argument now that people have to deal with. And there is no standard from at least as I read the Third Circuit, uh, there's no clear guidance on what it means other than something to do with being close enough to running out of money and insolvency. So I'll say, I think the, the input, right, you know, the factual basis of the question, that doesn't bother me. I think that's pretty clear. And I think the fact that it was relatively um, well, uh, the factual question stands alone. Is there a legal standard? I think that's what you're getting at, right? It's like, should this really be a mixed question? And if it is, what is our legal standard? I, I, I'll say, I, I think it was purposefully defined to not say all instances when it should be. And I think it is a flavor of insolvency with very clearly not saying we need insolvency. And I think that, you know, maybe is a nod to the regimes that do require insolvency saying, look, you know, our system really does give you some options because you don't have to be completely out of money to be here, uh, unlike in some of these other places. Uh, but you know, you have to not have enough at some time that's not so remote in the future. And really, that's what it is. And so the question is, well, what is remote enough in the future? Right. So, um, and what is, um, you know, if, if we get a couple more jury verdicts, would that be enough? And to me, that's what this is going to lead to. This is going to lead to you didn't really ask this question, but I'll answer it. This is going to lead to. Um, I mean, if I were a creative litigator, I would say, well, let's take one on the nose, get a bad verdict, then put it in. And if they're all measured at that, you know, let them come at us or let's wait or let's file it after certain discovery issues where it makes it look bad. But then the summary or then the science comes around and helps us after we're already in 11, because I don't think like, let's say, for example, there were a bunch of bellwethers here and all, all of them were in the you know $50 million range. Or, you know, if, if we had more evidence that the, the cost was closer to that $61, $61 million amount, the case would proceed. Let's say we were halfway through and we got science, you know, something came through that showed that these were actually, you know, tied to something else. And really the value was going to be much lower. I don't know that at that point, if financial distress was there at the time of the filing, but then during the course of the case, you know, I don't think we would kick them out. We don't kick out the meme stock cases where that all of a sudden are fine halfway through. So I think it just is going to lead to a bit of gamesmanship on the timing of filing. Um, and, you know, is that really better if you can kind of dress it up? You know, I'm not sure if it is. I think it will lead to a lot more lawyering. Um, and I agree that the standard isn't um, it, it's not a one sentence that a first year law. I would never assign this for a first year law student to, to put in the memo. But maybe that's also by design. So the, the courts can kind of figure out when it works and when it doesn't work. One thing just to add, and I'm curious, you know, when you started about the inputs, like shouldn't then the Third Circuit have deferred to Judge Kaplan a little more? Uh, I mean, he says, look, there's they're running $20 million a month. This could run up to $190 billion in litigation fees. This seems to me to be a company that like might end up down the road. And 
I guess I, maybe you're saying like the, the down the road is the legal question. Yeah. I, I think honestly, we, like yeah. at what point? So, I mean, even if we were to, you know, price this out, yes. I also think maybe this idea, like, I think it's, it's really easy to say, oh, but outside bankruptcy, our legal costs are just going to be outrageous. But, you know, these cases settle, you could, you know, I was at a conference recently with MDL types and we were very much the bankruptcies were kind of the black sheep in the room because MDLs are very proud of their ability to settle it. And yes, it takes time and yes, it takes money and there's plenty of lawyers involved, but it's not not certain that J and J would litigate every single one of these and pay a jury verdict. It's just, it's silly to think that that's the reality too. So um, as to whether I think the court could have deferred more, I mean, I think judge Kaplan was pretty careful to put in findings, but I don't know that the third circuit had to accept them. Uh, so that's, that's all I'll say on that. <laughs> one thing on settlement, um, as I understand when they tried to use the Emirates bankruptcy to settle, mm-hmm. they offered like $5 billion and it didn't work. Right. Which, okay. So, well, I read uh, Ambrose, the Third Circuit's opinion. I'm like, they've already offered 10% of their asset value. So we know that the settlement is likely more than that. And I'm just thinking like, if someone sued me for a plausible claim and I offered 10% of what I own and they said no, I would feel financial distress. Like <laughs> That would make me very distressed. And, like, and I know it's a company, but like, 20% of your assets, uh, like that starts to get to like, that's going to change the way things are going. Right, but that's not financial. That's, would you say that 10% you, is a, is a, if we were, if we had to say financial distress, like you're about, you know, you're, you're facing exposure on 10%, you would say that's enough? No, I'm saying when we know that it's, it's, we know that it's more than 10%. Was that, that we know is like the, that's the bottom. That's the yeah. That's the discount rejected offer. Yeah. So it could be a hundred percent, but that just, that makes me like, I, I'm just like, what fact do you have to find 20%, 30%. Like it, clearly the plaintiffs. And I, I think there was more, there was procedural reasons why that failed too, but let's assume the claimants don't want to accept the $5 billion claim. So they think the claims are worth more than that. Once they hit, I think 30%, or I'm sorry, 50% to 30, but like that feels like most companies could go into bankruptcy. If one lit one problem was going to eat up half of their assets and cause it affects operations too. Right. Then. I mean, well, so that, and that's kind of lead this is, I'm sorry, we're totally commandeering the Q and a, but I'll ask one more. Would we have this opinion if there were no two step? Because as you point out, the two step was really not part of this conversation. The court was very clear to say, look, we're not looking at old JJCI. We're not looking at what happened before the bankruptcy. In another case, we might have to look at that. So don't think that we're blessing it, but you know, what we're really looking at here is what happened. And so I guess if, Johnson Johnson, right? If the if the old JJCI had actually put itself into bankruptcy, including its products, including its vendors, if they really did just file a clean Chapter Eleven, would we have this issue? And I think the answer is no. I don't think we would have had the motion dismissed. I don't think they would have found it because, again, you know, you you alluded to the the viewpoint that look, we did this to help simplify it, right? We're simplifying bankruptcy for the claimants because we're not gonna, we're not gonna, why would we derail our vendors and our contracts and all this? But my pushback to that, that really, you know, and I get that, that makes sense, right? So we'll put all the money in, but all we're gonna do in this bankruptcy is deal with liability. That to me is part of the problem because one of the features of bankruptcy is you deal with the entire estate. And we basically fabricated an estate here. If we had the entire estate, then maybe the leverage of, oh, well, I have to deal with my Tylenol claims that that are maybe floating around. Oh, I have to hurry up and settle here because my vendors are getting unhappy and it's impacting my, like all of those nuances are part of the bankruptcy process too. And so Johnson Johnson got to avoid all of that by keeping segmented the pieces that they wanted to not deal with in 11 and only simplifying it. So I, I understand the argument, but I think it benefits them more than you let on. Yeah, well, this is, I think, where we disagree the most. And I'll say to your first point, I'm not, I don't, I, I think you're probably right that that would have played out differently, but the opinion does not say that. So now in the next case, I don't think JJCI can, uh, the a version of it can file because mm-hmm. now we have this opinion and you, you're, you are right that like, in some sense, what I was like, Oh, 10% that messes with your operations. The whole point of the two step is it doesn't, but I would push back and say bankruptcy is not a, a never been a punishment. It's never been a, uh, the idea that you have to prove that you really, really m- mean to, to reorganize. And 
The idea of requiring the company to go into a bank or the operating company to go in just to burn assets to prove either to prove they should be there or to your point for leverage, because it does change leverage. I agree with that, but that's destroying value to create it. What I would say is if we, if we don't like the leverage in bankruptcy, the negotiation power, we should change other things. And you mentioned, you know, outside of bankruptcy, plaintiffs choose the court inside debtors choose the court. I don't know which one of those rules is right. They both, (laughs) give one party huge leverage and you've just got to decide which system is better. Now, if you're like, okay, it was better when the plaintiffs chose because they have other places they lose leverage. Don't kick cases out of bankruptcy and just to destroy value, create different levers for the claimants. Like think about exclusivity, or as you mentioned in 3M, think about whether you grant the injunctions to uh, against other parties that changes the leverage a lot without burning money. Like I never think a system should be, we should destroy value in order to give party the right leverage. If you want to give them more leverage, you fix tort law or, you know, change the control levers, but don't be like, Oh, we want to put it in the most inefficient system possible because that gets the right settlement. That that's where I always push back on. And the two-step just makes it less expensive, which should be value maximizing for everybody. If we get the negotiating leverage, right. It just, it just assumes that the fact of not putting the whole entity in has no bearing on negotiated claim value, because if it's true that I agree with you, only put the asset in like the claimants do worse off than, you know, someone's going to lose either way. And so, you know, I'm not sure that J and J should get to win because they use this. Right. And so I, I think we're, we're, we have different, I don't think it needs to ruin value either, but I also don't think a maneuver should make claimants worse off. And I think to some degree, that's what the opinion is sort of getting at, right? Like, I don't think because you were clever, even though you're promising to pay all this money and we take your interests as genuine, that doesn't mean that you should be able to do all these things that happen to claimants in bankruptcy. Hmm. Well, I appreciate that back and forth very much. And Professor Simon, please don't worry about hijacking anything. Like, <laughs> this is exactly oh, I what wasn't, I I wasn't actually concerned, but I, I, I do appreciate <laughs> Well, the, the disclaimer, we I appreciate that and too, so... Um, some of our members and we have, there's a little bit of an allusion to this in, in many of the questions that we're receiving. Um, obviously the, the conservative and the libertarian is, uh, concerned with, um, judicial policymaking. And we're talking about the circuit court opinion and, and maybe there's, you know, an idea that the better case, instead of dismissing, it should have been put down to the bankruptcy court. But I'm wondering what both of you think if was the bankruptcy court um, on a, a more of a policy bent to begin with? Um, or did the, did the bankruptcy court um, stay inside of its lane? There, there's some question about what the bankruptcy court did in, in the first order. And I'm wondering, Professor Simon, you seem like you may have an opinion on it. So please. No. So uh, I think when you read the opinion, um, as you all should, if you haven't, uh, I think you can sense a general, a genuine frustration with how um, the various challenges to bankruptcy to resolve these problems miss all the beauty of it. Right. And so I, I you know, I, I think to some degree that a lot of the statements weren't necessary to the opinion, but I think it's pretty clear the judge felt they were important to say and to be a part of the conversation. I do know, you know, I heard a lot of commentary about how it was inappropriate to talk about this and how, you know, really, if we're going to compare MDL to bankruptcy, like we should really do it in a broader way under a different scope. But, um, yeah, I mean, I do think we're getting pushback. I think if you listen to some of the transcripts from Purdue Pharma, I think if you read carefully the, you know, the MDL transcript in 3M versus the bankruptcy court hearing transcripts, I think we are dealing with a not a power struggle. I don't think courts are necessarily fighting over these cases, but I do think we have a genuine disagreement or misunderstanding about the role of each of these systems and the the merits and the challenges. And I think it's really easy to go case by case when, you know, the features of one are fact specific, when a lot of this really, I think, is a better conversation to have at the, at the policy level, you know, whether it's the legislature, whether it's, you know, um, I, I don't even know, you know, I don't know the best way to go about forcing it to happen. But I think, I think that opinion is a good example. Yes. Uh, um, 
of judges at least pointing out the policy implications of why they're going a certain way. Not I think it was inappropriate. I'm, I'm not opining on that. I just, it, I think it, no doubt it, there's more than needed to be there. Let's put it like that. I guess I, you know, I, I have trouble with that thinking that it would like, the statute says you should dismiss cases and it lists the reasons and then it, you know, it says including, so it allows other reasons. But I think the most effective means for dismissing a case is because there's reasons as if you can't provide a proposed plan. So if you can't get a feasible plan, the case shouldn't be in bankruptcy. And if you wanted to be like, really stay in your lane, you say to the judge, there's no good faith. There's no, like, just read the statute this case stays in, right? Like this case has every, like I was talking to some non-bankruptcy economics, like, well, what are the requirements to file? There must be something. And I'm like, <laughs> you gotta be a person uh, as defined who can file for chapter 11, a person or a corporation, you've got to do the right things, but there isn't a, there isn't a part that says, right? You can't come in to solve a collective action problem on your creditors. And I do think this is a collective collective action problem among creditors. So to me, they, the judge Kaplan was very much staying in his lane. He's like, bankruptcy preserves value when creditors race to the courthouse. And we, you know, we talked earlier about, oh, get a few bad verdicts in. If you get five verdicts, like the one, the $4 billion one, right? Not only is that going to put LTL or J JCI in distress, that is going to take money from future claimants that will never recover. And that is because you'll run out of money long before they have claims, right? If you start, if you get to 20 billion, if you get to 60 billion, people who don't have claims yet will, and this, so this is a classic bankruptcy problem. So then I'm like, who wasn't staying in their lane? I read the third circuit opinion. I'm like, they just don't like, and Professor Simon said it, maybe they don't like that you were doing this thing that disadvantaged and changed the leverage. Now, I agree that leverage is being changed in all of this, but that sounds more policy to me than I want to solve a collective action problem. And the only thing I'll add is the irony in all of this, and I, I think Professor Simon has seen this as well, people are so inconsistent lawyers, academics, and talk, not like, not, I don't, not, not Professor Simon, but other people like talking about these things where they'll say in Purdue, it's not in the code that you can grant third-party releases. And then, then I'll, I'll say Johnson Johnson, it's not in the code that you can dismiss for lack of good faith. Like, I just don't under, like, like, when are you playing policy? When are you not playing policy? And to me, I, I think it goes back to what is the purpose of bankruptcy period? follow the code toward that purpose and releases advance that this case could advance advances it again, as long as the third, as long as the funding agreement is real and enforceable, I don't, I don't see that as a policy to let a policy decision to let that go forward. I see that as a bankruptcy judge saying, that's my job, like collective action problem. I can solve it. Um, nothing in the code says I can't. And in fact, if you read the code very strictly, I, he can't dismiss it for any reason, you know, for the reason that just the appellate court dismissed it. If you want to be like the purest of textualists. Professor Simon. I got nothing. I'll let you go to the next one. I know we're short on time. Yeah. So we have one interesting question from the audience, um, which asks, what if J&J um, &J redoes this funding agreement, but let's say they, they get an expert opinion to say, well, you know, we're going to forecast um, a, a $10 billion ultimate sediment. If they, if they redo the funding agreement and put it at 10 billion instead of 60 billion, what happens there? A related question, you know, what if the original funding agreement was 10 billion? What do you think? So the first question is easy. Yeah. Project transfer, right? So the funding agreement exists and they can't take it back now. And, and again, it's something that a lot of folks don't realize it exists and applies outside of bankruptcy. So that funding agreement is if this does appeal is final and it goes out, that funding agreement's there uh, and they'd have to buy it back if they were going to buy it back and it's worth $60 billion. So that I think is easy. The second question, I think you have to give the full asset value to make a two-step, not a fraudulent transfer and legal under Texas law. So I don't think you can undercut it to make it, uh, I'm only going to give 10% of my assets because I want to file. To me, that sounds that sounds not only as a constructive fraudulent transfer, but an actual fraud fraudulent transfer, actual intent. So 
I, I think they did it right and they can't change that. No, I don't. Yeah, absolutely. I think that in giving anything less than the value would make the Texas two-step hot button front and center, right? So far, I agree. It's kind of a red herring. I think everyone has it in mind when they see what's going, you know, but the opinion didn't turn on that. If they didn't fund it fully, I don't think there's any way um, it would have been approved. Uh, I do think, so the, the input, right, how much money would our assets, I don't know that that could change in this case. And these really, you know, big companies with plenty of money, like that number, I don't think, you know, maybe you can finagle it, but not not in the way that I think would, would lead to it. The bigger question is what, what is our exposure? And so I think that's where the attention will get focused. How can we, um, how can we, you know, make financial distress? How can we meet that threshold by getting our cases in a way that makes them look like maybe they are worth more than we hope they will be worth. And then hopefully reduce that down once we get into bankruptcy. If I were wearing my debtor's counsel hat, that's what I would think about doing. Right. Well, we have, we have about five minutes left. So I'll pose two large questions and you can infuse these into your, into your final remarks. Professor Casey, we'll start with you. A um, couple of things we've been talking about. Number one, and I think this has been uh, unanswered by, by, the, by the circuit court. How are we to understand the role of bankruptcy law in addressing mass tort liability going forward? And likewise, at least in the third circuit is, even though the, the opinion did not say anything about the Texas two-step, is the Texas two-step essentially null and void in the Third Circuit following the opinion? So, uh, and I think it's it's worth remembering that you know the the debtor didn't choose the Third Circuit. Actually, the debtor chose the Fourth Circuit, North Carolina. So I know Professor Simon mentioned normally you get to choose your judge, but there are limits and venue transfer here. They, I probably thought after they got the. The bankruptcy opinion, oh, that was actually a, a fortuitous venue transfer because the bankruptcy opinion was so supportive, even more, I think, supportive than the some of the rulings out of the North Carolina bankruptcy courts. Um, but this this opinion would make, I think, makes filing a, a Texas two-step type case in the Third Circuit very unlikely. But it was already they were not doing that. Um, so, so that that's that part. The the first part, and, and Professor Simon pointed this out earlier. There's other cases going on right now that are going to tell us a lot. Um, the 3M case, the issue on appeal, as I understand it, is the injunctive issue, and it's whether or not they denied the injunction against the parent because the parent was salt was argued to be solvent. And so there's a you know the Third Circuit was saying, can you file when you're not in financial distress? The Seventh Circuit has before the first, the current question is, can you get an injunction against the parent, a third party injunction when they're not in financial distress? But there's then motions to dismiss based on L LTL that might work their way up. Um, but I actually think the Purdue case is the most important because the third party releases are the key to these mass tort settlements. Um, and if that if if. You know, there's a reason the Texas two steps are not in Texas, right? Third party releases are very hard in the Fifth Circuit. And that's why we're not talking about the Fifth Circuit today. If the Second Circuit says third party releases are out, then your you know, mass torts are looking at the Fourth Circuit. And if they say it right. So that to me is the key, because once those are out, you're kind of saying you you can't get the global settlement in bankruptcy. So you're going to look for the global settlement outside of bankruptcy. And, and to me, that would be unfortunate because. And I think Professor Simon agreed earlier, there are cost savings. And you know, this is a way to get to the outcome quicker and I think more equitably among the claimants. To the extent my my the my place where I vehemently agree is there is a leverage shift that's going on. And then my disagreement is how do we fix the leverage shift? I don't think it's dismissal or not allowing releases. I think it's doing things like the judge did in Purdue, where you have a robust process. And you might even in a paper that I wrote recently with a colleague, uh, Josh Macy, we talk about, you know, there are extreme things you could do. And we talk about exclusivity and we talk about the, like denying certain types of injunctions, but that can all be done in bankruptcy if you're really worried about negotiation leverage. Uh, that's that's where I think this should go. But if we get three circuits that say no third party releases, mass torts are not going to be going to bankruptcy court uh, much going forward. I think that might be the issue that we disagree most on. I actually think even if Purdue comes out and says, and to be clear, we're not talking about all non-debtor releases. We're talking about non-consensual non-debtor releases, right? So I think if the th second circuit comes down and says, well, in this circuit, we will not allow non-consensual ones. Uh, I do think the the other 
reasons why companies file the consolidation, the automatic stay. I think it will still be worth their while to use bankruptcy as a forum. I think they will still try to propose a plan of reorganization. I think they will use time and negotiation to get as many people as possible to agree to the settlement. And then, you know, they'll consent to give the release because most plaintiffs will take the money and sign the release and they'll move on. Um, that's what we see in MDLs in many cases. So I think bankruptcy as a form will still be, it will still deal with these master cases for the very well-funded defendants. I think we'll also see them for, you know, the non not-for-profits. I think we, I think mass tort and bankruptcy is not ending, right? We're talking about Johnson Johnson 3M, you know, we're talking about money cases. There are plenty of non-money cases that will continue to be there. And I do still think the defendants who have a choice, whether to, you know, fight it out in MDL or, or look at bankruptcy, as long as it's known, right, we don't have this uncertainty where they go in with one plan and then come out with another and the law changes like that is expensive uncertainty that I imagine, you know, businesses don't want to finance. But if we know, okay, I can't get my non-debtor release without consent, but here are the three ways we can structure the plan to get as many as possible and reduce the pool of holdouts. And then we can just litigate those. That to me seems like the smarter play that I think companies will still do. I am in my answer. I actually agree with that last bit. I think Professor Chung is right. Excellent. Well, that's all the time we have. Um, to, to professors Casey and Simon, I, and on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank you very much for sharing both your expertise and your time with us today and helping us understand this case and some of its intricacies and larger ramifications. It was very helpful, very good discussion. I also want to thank our audience for joining us. We greatly appreciate your participation. Please check out our website, fedsoc.org or you can follow us on all major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date with announcements and upcoming webinars. Thank you all again once more for tuning in, and we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.